Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Pathological gambling is a major public health problem that is costly to society in direct and indirect ways. Between one-half and one-and-a-half percent of adults have the disorder, and many researchers believe that pathological gambling has a hereditary basis. In an effort to gain a better understanding of the etiology of pathological gambling, Dr. Donald Black and colleagues report findings from the world's largest family study of pathological gambling. They sought to determine whether pathological gambling is familial, to examine patterns of familial aggregation of disorders, and to investigate demographic and clinical characteristics that might contribute to the familial aggregation of pathological gambling. Their study was supported by a grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Assessments were comprehensive and included detailed information on relatives who were deceased or unavailable. 95 probands with pathological gambling, 91 controls, and 1,075 first-degree adult relatives were assessed. Rates of lifetime pathological gambling and subclinical pathological gambling were significantly greater among relatives of pathological gambling probands than among comparison relatives. Pathological gambling relatives had higher rates of mood and anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, and antisocial personality disorder. In a secondary analysis, the authors found that antisocial personality disorder, social anxiety disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder were more frequent in case relatives independent of the presence of pathological gambling. The authors conclude that mood and substance use disorders seem to emerge as a consequence of pathological gambling, while antisocial personality disorder, social anxiety disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder may share a common familial etiology with pathological gambling. Maintenance antidepressant treatment has been shown to reduce relapse rates after recovery from a major depressive episode. Maintenance trials usually have a randomized withdrawal design in which responders to an open-label course of an antidepressant either continue on the same drug or are switched to placebo. Their rates of relapse are then measured over time. These data have raised questions about whether the degree and stability of response before randomization influences relapse rate whether the return of depressive symptoms in the placebo group represents an acute drug withdrawal phenomenon, and whether the benefit of maintenance treatment decreases over time. To look at these issues, a group from the FDA compiled clinical efficacy data from all maintenance trials of antidepressants submitted to the FDA since 1987. Patients who stayed on antidepressant therapy had about half the relapse rate of those who discontinued treatment after recovery from a major depressive episode. 
This benefit appeared to result mainly from a decreased rate of relapsing depression rather than from acute drug withdrawal in the placebo groups. The nature of antidepressant response before randomization did not appear to affect the relapse rate, but the treatment benefit seemed to last longer when patients were stable before randomization. The question of how long to continue antidepressant treatment after recovery from an episode remains unanswered. Identification of individuals with schizophrenia who are at high risk for completed suicide or suicide attempts is an important public health, clinical, and research priority. The authors of this article present results from an analysis comparing subgroups of subjects from the Suprazidone Observational Study of Cardiac Outcomes, often referred to as the Zodiac Trial, an open-label, randomized, large, simple trial of over 18,000 patients with schizophrenia who were followed for one year by unblinded investigators providing usual care in 18 countries. Results show that the highest suicide-related mortality was seen among subjects recently diagnosed with schizophrenia. Among all potential baseline risk factors for completed suicide examined, the variables most associated with completed suicide were history of suicide attempts and use of antidepressant medication history of more than five hospitalizations in the past, and history of suicide attempts were the variables most associated with attempted suicide among potential baseline risk factors for suicide attempts. A greater understanding and timely recognition of the key factors for suicidal events would help focus clinical priorities and resources on highly vulnerable patients during critical time periods. This study was supported by Pfizer. Cost-effectiveness of treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder may depend on the type of treatment patients receive, for example, SSRIs versus cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as whether patients are given their first choice of treatment. Preference for treatment may moderate treatment efficacy. If preference is a moderator, then pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy may be maximally effective for those who prefer it and minimally effective for those who do not. The authors of this article examine the cost-effectiveness of treatment with prolonged exposure therapy, a cognitive behavioral therapy, or sertraline, an SSRI, and the cost-effectiveness of letting patients choose the treatment they want most between the two options. The study received funding from the National Institute of Mental Health and the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. The study drug sertraline was supplied by Pfizer. The study results show that letting patients choose the treatment they most desired resulted in lower costs and better treatment outcomes. When choice was not offered, prolonged exposure therapy was more cost-effective than sertraline. The authors conclude that having the choice of empirically validated treatment options for PTSD, such as the ones studied here, may improve patient outcomes and reduce health care costs. 
In the United States, primary care physicians have historically tended to treat young people and adults with less severe mental disorders, while psychiatrists and other mental health specialists have generally focused on treating people with more severe mental health conditions. Little is known about recent patterns in the respective roles of primary care physicians and psychiatrists in delivering outpatient mental health care. The authors of this study used data from a national survey to evaluate trends from 1995 to 2010 in the outpatient treatment of mental health problems by primary care physicians and psychiatrists. The research for this study received funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, the New York State Psychiatric Institute, and the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality. The results reveal that mental health care is becoming an increasingly important aspect of office-based primary care practice. A growing percentage of visits to primary care physicians results in the diagnosis of bipolar, depression, anxiety, and disruptive behavior disorder diagnoses and in the prescription of antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, anxiolytic and or hypnotics, and anti-ADHD medications. There was also a significant increase in the proportion of primary care visits that included two or more different mental disorder diagnoses. In their discussion, the authors note that the role of primary care physicians in the provision of mental health care to patients with complex psychopathology has expanded. This development places on these physicians new clinical demands for which they may not be fully prepared. These trends highlight the importance of developing effective collaboration between primary care physicians and psychiatrists. Over the next few years, the role of primary care physicians in delivering mental health care will likely increase further with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Mood and anxiety disorders are common in people with alcohol dependence and can complicate the care of these individuals. However, mounting evidence suggests that clinical trials of alcohol dependence treatment often omit patients with these comorbid disorders. In this analysis of data from a large national survey conducted in the United States, the authors sought to determine how often alcohol-dependent individuals are excluded from research studies on the treatment of alcohol dependence. Independent mood and anxiety disorders were prevalent in the overall alcohol-dependent population, but not surprisingly, not in clinical trial research samples, since most individuals who had sought alcohol treatment would have been ineligible for inclusion in such trials. Of the nearly 1,500 alcohol-dependent individuals identified, about 40% had co-occurring mood or anxiety disorder, nearly two-thirds of whom would have been ineligible for an alcohol dependence treatment trial if typical eligibility criteria were used. For alcohol dependence trials to adequately inform clinical practice, the enrollment of patients with co-occurring mood or anxiety disorders must be increased through trials tailored to this population. A general relaxation of overly stringent eligibility criteria, or both. Current treatment guidelines for bipolar disorder are based mainly on experts' opinions and the results of randomized controlled trials. 
However, the patient populations included in these studies may not represent real-world bipolar patients. As a complement of the existing randomized controlled trials, a group of researchers from Germany conducted a naturalistic four-year study of treatment and outcome in 300 bipolar patients. Patients completed a structured web-based interview that recorded their mental health status, relapses, and current medications. Prescribed medications included lithium, carbamazepine, valparate, lamotrigine, antidepressants, and atypical antipsychotics, all of which were compared as single treatments or in combination with at least two prophylactic agents. 68% of the patients relapsed within four years. A mean of 208 days elapsed until the next effective episode. The polarity of the relapse correlated significantly with the polarity of the index episode. Only lithium, not in combination with other preventive medication, significantly delayed the time to the next effective relapse. Time to relapse was significantly reduced when medication was replaced by the psychiatrist or stopped by the patient. Development of the web-based interview and database was funded by the Austrian Federal Department for Transport, Innovation and Technology, Department of Innovations and Telecommunications. Additionally, the study was funded by grant support from Spain's Institute of Health, Carlos III. This article is free online with registration at psychiatrist.com and is a continuing medical education offering. Fragile X syndrome is the most common cause of inherited intellectual disability. It is caused by full mutations of the fragile X mental retardation gene, or FMR1. Premutations of this gene were believed to not be clinically relevant until a little over a decade ago, when a serendipitous discovery showed that FMR1 premutations did cause clinical symptoms and were in fact responsible for a new neurodegenerative disease, Fragile X-Associated Tremor Ataxia Syndrome, or FAXTAS. FAXTAS combines neurological and psychiatric symptoms. Therefore, it behooves psychiatrists to consider it in the differential diagnosis of dementias in individuals with intention tremor and gait abnormalities, or those with a family history of intellectual disability. Faxtas dementia can be recognized by prominent executive dysfunction plus other cognitive deficits. Anecdotal reports of improvement in these symptoms with the NMDA antagonist memantine led to an NIH-supported, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of memantine 10 milligrams twice a day in 70 patients. After one year, however, there was no difference between the memantine and placebo groups with regard to tremor, severity, or executive function tests. Adults with post-traumatic stress disorder and co-occurring personality disorders have not often been the focus of researchers. Yet evidence has shown that treatment of PTSD is significantly reduced when an individual has a comorbid personality disorder. Understanding how personality disorders may affect the treatment of PTSD can help inform the presentation, course, and treatment of this disorder. In this article, 
the authors used a statistical probability-based technique called latent class analysis to classify a nationally representative sample of over 2,000 adults with a lifetime diagnosis of PTSD. The PTSD diagnoses were based on the 10 personality disorders of the DSM-IV. The study was funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The authors identified three classes of personality disorders. The largest class, comprising 76% of the sample, had close to zero probability for all personality disorders. The second class, comprising 13% of the sample, was labeled the obsessive paranoid class because individuals in this group had high probabilities of having obsessive compulsive and paranoid personality disorders. The third class, comprising 11% of the sample, was labeled the borderline dysregulated class because individuals in this group had high probabilities of having borderline, schizotypical, and narcissistic personality disorders. The authors found that those in borderline dysregulated and obsessive paranoid classes had poor mental health and were more likely to have attempted suicide than those with close to zero probability for all personality disorders. The borderline dysregulated class was more likely to have used PTSD treatment and to have self-medicated using alcohol, while the obsessive paranoid class was more likely to have reported sexual assault as their worst trauma. The authors conclude that their results underscored the importance of comprehensive evaluation of personality disorder in the assessment, monitoring, and treatment of PTSD. The frontier between suicide attempters and suicide completers is blurred. Clinical, demographic, or personality differences may explain why the outcome of a suicide attempt is fatal or not. Understanding these differences could help clinicians identify subjects at high risk of ultimately committing suicide. In this article, the authors investigated the boundaries of suicide by comparing subjects who made violent attempts and serious but nonviolent attempts with subjects that made only nonviolent, non-serious attempts. The author's aim was to discover whether subjects making violent and serious attempts would reflect some features found in suicide completers. The study was supported financially by the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention and four other nonprofit institutions. The study results revealed that violent and serious attempters were not more impulsive or aggressive than nonviolent, non-serious attempters. They also did not differ in regard to the extent to which they planned suicide, but they made more attempts, and they did so with a higher level of severity than the rest of the attempters. Violent attempters were also more often men, and they usually had a history of suicidal behavior in the family. The authors conclude that violent and serious suicidal attempters exhibit some features that suggest they are closer to completion in the suicidal process. Antipsychotics are effective in treating schizophrenia. However, they primarily address positive symptoms, while disabling negative and cognitive symptoms can persist. This commentary briefly explains how dopamine dysfunction affects the symptoms of schizophrenia, 
Why dopamine is a treatment target may limit the efficacy of medications and how glutamate may provide possible novel targets for pharmacotherapy to more comprehensively manage the constellations of schizophrenia symptoms. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at the ways in which false positive results can easily arise in exploratory research and how confounding may be responsible for statistical significance in studies that are not randomized controlled trials. Dr. Andrade frames the discussion in the context of two studies that differed in their findings of an association between antidepressants and testicular cancer. The associations found in the first study disappeared after adjusting for confounding variables in the second study. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. In this month's ASCP Corner, Gupta and colleagues examine the relationship between schizophrenia and the endocannabinoid system. They discuss studies linking cannabis use to the development of severity of schizophrenia and then go on to look at novel treatment strategies based on the endocannabinoid system. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.